Welcome to Connecting Citizens to Science, a podcast from the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine about engaging communities in global health research. I'm Kim Ozano. And I'm B. Eggard, and throughout this series, we'll be talking to researchers from around the world, exploring how they connect with people to address a range of challenges in global health. Hello, and welcome to the Connecting Citizens to Science podcast. This month's series is focusing on the theme of gender and health, and our co-host for this month is Dr. Wessam Mansour, a postdoctoral research associate at LSTM. Wessam, would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, B. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Wissam Mansour, a pediatrician by background. I had my PhD in health policy and management from the University of Manchester in 2019, just before I joined uh, Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, where I'm currently working as a postdoctoral research associate in health systems. And um, I'm really happy to join you today and co-hosting this episode. So thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much, Wessam. And today we're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Bintu Mansare, Lead Research Consultant at the Institute of Gender and Health and Children's Research in Sierra Leone, and Dr. Tara Tancred, a Senior Research Associate at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Bintu and Tara will be talking to us about doing participatory research with highly vulnerable populations, focusing on women who have survived trafficking and the importance of centering their voices in research processes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Bintu and Tara, and please can I ask that you introduce yourself for our listeners. Thank you for having me. I am Bintu and I have a background in medicine. So I trained as a medical doctor and worked for a few years in that and then sparked my interest in research. So mostly focused on child abuse, child sexual abuse and sex trafficking. So I did my master's in pediatrics at LSTM um, in 2018. And now I'm doing a PhD looking at the multisectoral responses to sexual abuse in Africa. And um, I've worked with Tara on um, this really interesting project on returned survivors of sex trafficking who've come back home to two countries in Africa. Great. Thanks so much. And Tara, could we hear from you? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I'm Tara Tancred. I'm a senior research associate at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. Uh, I work within the Center for Capacity Research. Uh, so I have lots of research that sort of peripherally involves capacitating different stakeholders to do participatory research. So a lot of the work that I've done previously has been working with community members, but also health facility staff and also sometimes sort of higher level decision making type stakeholders capacitating them around especially different types of quality improvement as participatory approaches, um, largely with a view to uh, improving maternal and newborn health, uh, but certainly within the umbrella of sexual and reproductive health more broadly. Thank you so much. Um, so could you tell us in a little bit more detail about this project with survivors that you're working on, the kind of approaches that you're using and the context that you're working in, please? So we have been doing some work in Sierra Leone and in Uganda. So this was actually just part of a smaller study. It was a pilot and each country worked with 10 women, uh, all of whom were survivors of trafficking. Five of them uh, were part of the participatory action cycle group and part of the, and the other five were part of a photo voice group. The intention of both groups was really to try to understand their needs around sexual and reproductive health, their understanding of sexual and reproductive health, where they may have had unmet needs, um, and generally their expectations for care. Uh, we also did some sort of qualitative work with healthcare providers to also understand what they really understood about providing sexual and reproductive health services to survivors of trafficking. 
So within this, uh, yeah, as I said, it was just a small, small pilot. Uh, but in both countries, um, you know, we had a lot of really, really interesting uh, discussions and I think findings around, um, you know, when survivors were obviously they're very, very vulnerable women. Often they have been quite a highly researched population. So having them participate in this type of research where they were much more in the driver's seat, um, you know, I think was quite different. And I think that was quite appreciated. Uh, and I guess of, of the crux of this was really also around driving some action. So thinking about how sexual and reproductive health could be improved by survivors themselves, you know, on their terms, given their own priorities. And one thing that came up in both contexts was that stigma and discrimination are obviously huge. Uh, and we know for sure from discussions with survivors that it precludes them from accessing care. Um, and so in both contexts, there was a strong desire around advocacy and around raising awareness about the experiences of survivors to hopefully reduce some of that stigma and discrimination. So in both contexts, uh, documentaries were developed. Um, in the case of Sierra Leone, there was also a sort of community docudrama of <laughs> I will let Bintu explain that more, but yeah, it was a really, really interesting uh, piece of work. And I think there was lots of unexpected, but really rich insights generated. Yeah. So, um, so as um, Tara was saying, this, um, the approach we used was new for the survivors. It was new for the gatekeepers. So what we did was we targeted gatekeeping organizations first, um, because I think that puts us in a position of trust with the survivors because they're coming back. So meeting with these organizations, um, letting them introduce us to the women and telling them that you don't have to take part. This is all you. It's not just us coming to ask you questions, but also um, you are the ones actually doing the research and we're just looking at what you're doing. And they found that really interesting. They were so involved in it. Those that were in the photo voice, where they had these pictures that some were not even taken during our research, but they had them in their possession, in their phones, and um, they shared these pictures with us because it, it has been in their possession. They don't know what to do. They, they actually don't have people to talk to about these pictures. And it was interesting to see the narratives that they brought up on simple pictures that you will see that may not mean anything to anyone looking at it. And it's the sense of community because when they go back, they're so isolated. Quite a number of them are not living with family members anymore. They were not accepted in their homes. And so they, they, they stayed on their own or stayed with friends. But having this community of women that understand what they've been through. So when the research started, we told them that we're not going to do focus group discussions if you don't want to. You don't have to tell your stories to everybody in the room. You know, you just tell us uh, um, your stories one on one with researchers. And eventually it slowly progressed to them having focus group discussions because um, they felt like they are with their own people. They're, they are with their own communities. And it's interesting to see that even after the study has ended, they still have their WhatsApp groups um, that they maintained. So it was really great. It was um, it was such a good methodology to use, especially for this group of women. Yeah, that sounds like it. And I think that description of solidarity between survivors is so powerful. And also it's always great to hear about um, these sort of relationships and communities that are built that live beyond the timeline of a project. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you so much. 
I'm going to pass on to Wesam now, who's going to ask you a few more detailed questions about the project. So over to you, Wesam. Thanks, Pete. Um, actually, I'm currently working on two participatory action research projects, and I can imagine how powerful participatory research approaches can be. But uh, can you explain more why they are useful when carrying out research with survivors? How have you engaged them in the research? So I think that with any participatory research, your participants are in the driver's seats. You know, it's very much about their priorities. Uh, so in the case of both groups, participatory action cycles obviously follow a very clear cycle that starts with, you know, problem identification and thinking about something to implement and then actually implementing it and having some reflections on that. Photo voice was used ultimately for a springboard for discussion and then to follow a similar process of based on that discussion, thinking about identifying, you know, where key sort of context specific problems or priorities lie and then thinking about how to address those. So in both cases, you absolutely find that survivors were, of course, prioritizing and having discussions um, on the basis of what they found important to discuss. So it's really different than a traditional sort of qualitative interview or focus group discussion where you have a very explicit guide. We, of course, had some guiding prompts and you know some considerations on, on how those types of discussions would be held, but ultimately it was really, really driven by survivors. Using photo voice as you know, a sort of really clear illustrative example of this, as Bintu said, women were using any photo so that was definitely unintended in our method, but it was it worked so, so well because it also helps, I think, a lot with recall. So these women were often taking photos during their processes of being trafficked or having escaped trafficking or immediately thereafter when they were seeking medical attention or something like that. So they had these photos of, you know, these, you know, really, really poignant parts of their life that had been captured in these moments that we were then able to access. So in that respect, yeah, I think it's very, very appropriate because it's survivor-centered and it's survivor-led. But another point of that is because it's survivor-led, it's not triggering. We're not asking them, tell me about your experience of sexual abuse when you were trafficked. You know, it's, it's so different. They had ubiquitous experiences of sexual abuse and those came up, but they came up often after there had been a lot of trust building, you know, again, these processes, it's not just a one-off thing. It's not just you, you kind of dive in, you have an interview and then that's it, you're gone as a researcher. It's having recurring processes that were facilitated and through those recurring processes that had both individual and group level interactions, there was a lot of opportunity to build rapport, to build trust. As Bintu said, you know, everything started with engagement with community gatekeepers and really making sure that there was an important entry point to access survivors. So all of that was was really, really important. And I think the emphasis on it, these processes being action orientated were also, you know, about seeking opportunities and things like that. So Bintu actually had a discussion um, with Sam and Hasi the other day. Uh, interviewing them, obviously, about their process as facilitators. So these were our facilitators um, in Sierra Leone of these processes. And something that really resonated with, with both of them very, very clearly was that, you know, this was quite uplifting. Survivors, unexpectedly, again, it's not the intention of the processes, but it happened sort of organically, were informing each other about job opportunities and really trying to uplift one another. And still, after you know this research has taken place that that community still exists so that's just not something that you get um, with sort of traditional qualitative approaches that community building was so so important because these women have this shared experience that's highly stigmatized 
and they're in uh, you know, a trusting space where their privacy and confidentiality will be upheld, where you know, they can feel free to be open um, or not. Again, it's on their terms. So I think all of those aspects make it very unique, not just for and appropriate, not just for survivors, but for vulnerable populations more generally. I don't know, Bintu, did you have any different reflections on that? Um, no, I think because um, obviously I was very apprehensive with this group of women and funders are apprehensive, um, even though there's been a lot of work on them, is that all oh, this research will be so triggering. So we worked with the gatekeepers and we asked them these questions. Are they seeking counseling? Are these women who would find this very traumatizing? And they're like, no, just give it a try. So what we did, we had a very first meeting with them. We got them all in a room and I said, you don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. We're not going to come here and ask you about sexual abuse or about physical abuse. What we want to hear about is what are your plans or what you know about sexual and reproductive health. They've never even had the time before, some of them, in that frame. And then you have to break it down. And of course, they know what sexual and reproductive health is, but just in another way. And so there were no direct questions about that, but it eventually came up because the trust has been built. The foundation is there. They're coming from their communities to the safe space where they can talk about anything and it went over weeks. So it's not just coming with a list of questions and asking them questions. Sometimes they come and they don't say anything. And it's interesting looking at the transcripts. They come and they talk about something completely different. Maybe just talk about their house, what's happening at home, nothing about trafficking, nothing about abuse. And then they go home. And another time they'll come, they'll talk until they cry. So it's not just one day, it's, it's a process. So you have all this data, all this transcripts that you have to look at, and then you have to pick out what meets your research objectives. We're just giving them the space to lead the research. I think that was what helped. Thanks very much. That's really interesting. And I believe the participatory approaches uh, helped you come up with some uh, useful actions and positive impacts on the survivors. I think also it acted like a therapeutic space for them, as you previously uh, highlighted, uh, Pinto. But uh, throughout your work, have you experienced any unintended impacts uh, of participatory research approaches with survivors? Um, for this particular research, for me, it was the community that was built. So I remember when they started, some of them were like, I'm not going to talk about anything. I don't know these women. I don't know these girls. I'm not going to talk about my business here. Or um, you hear them saying, because others are in the room, I wasn't sexually abused. I wasn't physically abused. I just wanted to come home. And then you see how that slowly changed over the over the weeks of the of the of the project, where right? they sit and they trade stories and they talk about stories. And something that started is um Tara, I was telling you about it's when they say they give the story in terms of somebody else. I have a friend who this happened to, you know, and then slowly they own up to the stories that actually this is my story. So for me, one of these is the community it builds. Besides the fact that they are leading the research, they're driving it, is that they become they became so much confident. They owned what happened to them, realized that it's really not their fault. And there are other women who are going through the same thing. So how bad can I be? It's not just me. It's hundreds of other women. So maybe I was just vulnerable. Maybe I was just taken advantage of. And um, this is what studies like this do, actually. So it was something I saw that was very interesting. 
just just to sort of piggyback off of what Bintu has just been saying, so that sort of sense making of the experience comes out really interestingly in transcripts, especially because we have multiple transcripts of the same participants. So that sort of evolution of that sense making, I think, was really really powerful. But an added benefit of that, equally, a lot of comments were made about the positive impact of these processes and simply having these discussions and simply being able to discuss and describe these horrible experiences with people who you know can truly empathize was very cathartic and it was also very positive for their mental health and well-being so the way that mental health was described by a lot of participants was a sense of feeling overwhelmed or some participants even described themselves as feeling crazy all these you know really negative words were being used and then people were talking about it being like a breath of fresh air or you know just having mental clarity or feeling calm so it was really interesting that that sort of language was coming out through the transcripts because i do think that for many of these women part of this process was very positive to their mental health and well-being. Thanks very much. This is really inspiring. Can you provide us with some key considerations you made while carrying out uh, research with survivors? Um, Yes. So what we did in the first meeting was, okay, so we invited them to our office space for them to see where we are, where the office was located, what is available for them for the duration of the study. But they had the option of not coming to the office. So what do you want? So this is the office space. These are the different rooms that would ensure your privacy because you know at the start, they wanted everything to be very private, one-on-one with the facilitator and the researcher. So we showed them the different offices and we told them you can schedule your time with the researcher and we'll make sure that you, you, you schedule your day, you schedule your time in the week. It's just once a week. You can choose any day, any time. The researcher would make um, themselves available to you. But also, you don't have to come to the office. We can meet you where you are. And uh, Tara, this was something we talked about in the early stages of the research. That we were surprised that all of them wanted to come to the office because they were not living somewhere that was suitable, somewhere they felt like they could have this open conversation. So it was a neutral ground for them. And then we ask them, this is a research where we're not going to pay you money. Um, we're not going to give you money for your conversations. It's about learning what you've been through. You don't have to be there, but what can we do to make it easier for you? So they said, oh, because where the office was, it was far from the main road. What about providing us lunch or tea? So if we come in the morning, what about breakfast? We're like, okay, that's something we could do. I discussed it with Tara. Is that something you think we could do? And she was like, yeah, providing them refreshments is something we can do. And so it's just having this discussion on how do you make this easier for them? Um, so yeah, I would completely agree with everything that Bintu has said. And I think it really speaks to just being flexible with participants. Um, another thing that we really invested a lot of time in was safeguarding. So Bintu has a lot of expertise in safeguarding, and I think we really benefited from that as a study team, but we actually sat down with participants and we asked them, you know, what can we do to enable you to feel safe? 
and there was a lot of really interesting things that came up, um, specific considerations that survivors had that we would never have even thought of, you know, accommodating their, their you know, childcare sort of needs and responsibilities, making sure that we could, um, you know, as, as Bintu was talking about, work around their schedules, but also working around their preferred locations, things like that. It's just, it's really, really important. Um, I think working with community gatekeepers, as we've already talked about, was really instrumental in establishing trust because these were already trusted organizations that survivors were working with. And definitely, I think confidentiality was so important, really establishing all of those processes as very safe spaces where participants could be free to speak very openly. Uh, so I think all of those were really, really important considerations um, that we had when carrying out work with survivors. I wanted to ask as well if the women's journeys of return, as you, I think, phrased it, um, from being trafficked, if there was consistency in their experiences and in their journeys of return, or if everybody comes back and reintegrates in very different ways. Um, I think there was a lot of consistency. First of all, their method of return was overwhelmingly that they were able to access the Sierra Leonean embassy where they were. And so accessing the embassy that facilitated their safe passage back to Sierra Leone. So that was sort of one thing. What was quite different is that some people were able to sort of escape where they were and get to the embassy, whereas some women actually ended up being re-trafficked in that process. So escaping from where they were, not really having any clue how to get to the embassy, being picked up by someone and ultimately, you know, basically being forced into sex work and then escaping that and ending up at the embassy. So that was quite different for a lot of women. And then on return home, there is definitely a near universal experience of sort of being rejected from your community. Because what is really horrifying about this process is that these women were told overwhelmingly that they were going to get a job opportunity. So they had to pay their traffickers effectively, not recognizing they were traffickers. They thought that they were legitimate, you know, organizations supporting their employment overwhelmingly in the Middle East. So they had to pay for visas and flights and all these things. And they were basically told, okay, this will come out of your paycheck, you know, so you will go, we'll set that all up. You know, you have all these fees and sometimes they were charged fees ahead of time. So sometimes they took money from their family members Sometimes they didn't even tell their family members that they were taking those resources. And so some of them, it, it looks like they basically stole from their family in order to do this. And there's no understanding at all around what this really was. And so the conditions they describe are basically like it was absolutely it was imprisonment. And then 100 percent of them also then experienced, you know, rife sexual abuses when they were in their homes. So. I think when they were trying to re-enter, there was definitely a lot of stigma and discrimination, sometimes emanating directly from their families because their families themselves sometimes felt exploited because there was use of money or resources in order to get to the Middle East. Yes, there was a lot of problems with reintegration, which is um, something that led to even worse mental health um, issues. So there were different ones. We were talking about the economic um, aspects of it, because obviously we all know what happens with trafficking. Oh, we're going to get you um, somewhere with a better life. So they stole money from their families. They stole properties that they sold off from their families. So there's a lot of this anger that um, they took all of this and went away. And some is like, how do you even dare return with nothing? Like you could have stayed there. So some of them actually said that, that their families were like, why did you come back? Others are making millions there. No matter how bad it is, it's worse for us here. 
so you should have stayed. And then there's the other aspects of coming back with unwanted pregnancies, with um, pregnancies um, for foreigners that um, wouldn't be able to integrate in these communities. So it's the lack of access of abortion as well in these countries. Some of them could access um, healthcare in those countries. They could access abortions. Others um, were just thrown out in the streets. They don't speak the language, so they had to come back to their countries. So families were not accepting them. You, you not only went, but you came back with this huge shame um, on married and pregnant. So. There's a lot of issues surrounding um, reintegration, which was why they decided they wanted to do a, a community um, drama as to what they faced, why they went. So the drama was really interesting. They decided on the script. They acted it out. So we found someone who could work with them on the script. So in a way, um, it was for them to actually show what is happening. So what... What were the reasons why they went, what they faced um, in these countries where they went, and what they're facing now that they're back. So it was um, very empowering for them because it was a way to show the communities that we just did not take this decision lightly. And the way you're acting now that we're back is very hurtful. It's not helping us. So... It's a work in progress because the gatekeeping organizations are also trying to work with these communities to take them back. But we have to understand it's a country that is, um, some of the homes they're coming from is deeply rooted in poverty. There's no there's no vacuum there. It has been filled. The spaces have been filled. So it's not like you leave and you come back and your bedroom has been preserved for you. It's not the same way in these homes and these communities. So it's about how can they make a place for themselves back in their communities. That's so interesting to hear. And I just wanted to ask, the docudrama that you mentioned sounds incredible. I can imagine so empowering and the bravery taken by those women to put that together. Um, I wondered if that was uh, displayed anywhere or how it was disseminated and how it was received. Oh, yes, it was. So we did uh, we did a stakeholder workshop, a stakeholder meeting, basically, to talk about our results, to talk about our findings. And we played the drama for them. And it was interesting to see some people crying because they don't really know exactly what the impact is. And we made sure the they also had access to it. Um, so in their communities, they took out small uh, um, cinema places to actually play it for the communities. It was on the radio, it was on the TV. So a lot of dissemination was done and it was posted on social media. I put it on my, on my Twitter pages. People asked for the documentary. So organizations, so we're very... Um, intentional about the organizations that we um, invited. So we made sure that all of them had access to um, to the documentary. So we did our best. We tried to actually get the story out. And a lot is happening in the human trafficking um, space in Sierra Leone. So for once, it's, been actu it's actually been prioritized because there was a lot of blaming and guilt on these women as opposed to the government actually seeing, seeing it as a crime and working um, to end it. But slowly things are, are changing. Wonderful. Um, so thank you so much for this incredible story that you've shared. It's wonderful to hear. So for other people looking to do work um, of this kind, potentially with vulnerable groups, do you have any key pieces of advice for researchers looking to do this sort of work in the future? Um. I'm sure, Bintu, you probably have some additional reflections, but I think if, if we were to sort of consider the whole process, 
definitely like really taking time to develop relationships with gatekeepers and then to ensure that you can work effectively with gatekeepers to access communities um, that you're trying to work with and so that you can really build rapport and trust with communities and with your prospective participants or co-researchers um, certainly right from the outset. So giving time to work with gatekeepers, giving time to build trust and rapport, um, for sure as necessary, giving time to actually build capacities. So in this work, we had to build capacities around actually helping survivors to understand what sexual and reproductive health was, the way that we were sort of conceptualizing it and understanding how they were conceptualizing it. Um, um, and then I think another consideration that Bintu mentioned was also around managing expectations. Um, so being really, really transparent from the outset. This is what this is. This is what this is not. Um, so if this is something that you're keen to participate in, great. And if it's not, if that's not okay with you, then that's also completely fine. But just having transparency um, about all the processes and managing those expectations is, is really key. And then I think the final point is just really around safeguarding. If you're working with vulnerable persons, there's a lot of opportunity for exploitation. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for harm, even unintentionally exacerbating harms because people are so, so vulnerable. Um, so I think just really, really trying to familiarize yourself with the needs and the potential for harm within your specific population that you're working within is really, really essential. Bintu, would you add to that? Yeah, I've just to add is um listening, listening to your survivors about what they want, listening to those you're doing the research with, because there's always this power dynamics um with high income countries basically holding the post strings and working with researchers in low income countries. It's actually listening to those who are living in these settings and incorporating their own thoughts and ideas. And finally, what you said about safeguarding, um, what we did to the, towards the end of the study that's also something that we can share is is developing a safeguarding questionnaire which was amazing it's in the safeguarding hub uk website as well so it's developing a, safe, a safeguarding questionnaire where we ask them how do we keep you safe how did how, how did you find the study was it safe because we started it in the beginning so looking at the end of the study what could we have done um better what what else we could have done to make sure you felt safe so um it's about knowing that you're responsible for your participants not only when they're in your own space so our own study was really short but say you're doing a, a two-year study or a three-year study is having these regular check-ins and basically uh, um putting structures in place to ensure that it becomes even safer because what I would think is safe might not be what the participants want or need or they feel like they need more. So it's also it's listening to them and having these conversations with them. So that checklist was really helpful and will be helpful for whatever projects we do with um, vulnerable groups. Thank you so much. And I really, I really like that conceptualization of safeguarding as being a real two-way process where people can actually feed back on how safe they feel. I feel like my experiences with it are often sort of, you know, you as a researcher thinking about what the potential risks are and how you'll mitigate them, but actually engaging with people and making sure that they feel protected. I think that's so valuable. So a huge, huge thank you for coming to talk to us today. Um, it's been such an insightful discussion um, and I'm sure one that our listeners really will have learned a huge amount from. Thank you so much for coming, coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, and I wish you all the best with your upcoming work. <laughs>